Stay hungry, stay foolish. There are truths which are not for all men, nor for all times. Voltaire. True or false, it's rarely that simple. This show should equip you to spot and neutralize the misleading truths that are all around us and to communicate more effectively with family, friends, and colleagues. There is more than one truth about many things. Eating meat is nutritious, but it's also damaging to the environment. The internet disseminates knowledge, but it also spreads hatred. When we communicate, we naturally select the truths that are most helpful to our agenda. We can select truths constructively to inspire organizations, encourage children, and drive progressive change, or we can select truths that give a false impression of reality, misleading people without actually lying. Others can do the same, motivating or deceiving us with the truth. Truths are neutral but highly versatile tools that we can use for good or for ill. Today we will explore how truth is used and abused in politics, business, the media and everyday life. Our guest today shows how a clearer understanding of truth's many faces renders us better able to navigate our world and be more influential within it. We welcome strategic communications expert, master storyteller, and author of the brilliant Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality, Hector MacDonald. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Aidan. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Hector, you start by telling us the book looks forward to a backlash and that we live in times of fake news and alternative facts and you anticipate a revival of public concern for the truth and a widespread insistence that politicians, business leaders, campaigners, and other professional communicators be held accountable for the truthfulness of their worlds. Could you share that with us a little bit to give context for why you wrote the book? Sure. So I was writing this mostly last year, 2017, um, in the, sort of the, the first few months of the Trump presidency, I guess. And there was a huge sense of disquiet about how both Brexit and the Trump win had come about and, and some of the falsehoods and deceptions and misleading truths that we'll come on and talk about might have contributed to both of those outcomes. And at the time, I think a lot of sensible centrist individuals were, were just baffled by, by how this sort of epidemic of fake news and alternative facts had taken over. And it seemed to me that we are absolutely going to see a, a backlash against that. And indeed, I think this year we have seen the start of that with, for example, the, the Facebook hearings in Congress um, and various other uh, attacks, both in the press, but also in, in politics against uh, social media platforms that allow you know, the widespread dissemination of, of falsehoods. Um, we see the great work that, for example, the Washington Post fact-checking unit is doing monitoring President Trump's falsehoods. I believe they're up to over 5,000 um, misleading statements since he took office. So th there are lots of good institutions and individuals and, and political um, authorities trying to counter this, this spread of false, falsehood, fake news, misleading ideas. Um, but we've got a long way to go. And, and certainly um, it's, it's going to be a little bit like uh, the war on terror, probably, it's going to be a never-ending battle to try and um, counter the kind of the, the kind of flood of misleading ideas and statements that have been enabled by, uh, and we may come on and talk about this in more depth. You know, technology, um, social media, and and 
the sort of rise of populist parties across across the Western world. I love what you do in the book because you explode every aspect of this apart and then bring it back together as you do brilliantly in your own professional consultancy as a master storyteller. And you talk about each element of truth, the responsibility of the truth teller, but also the receiver of the truth or, or of the story. But also distribution, as you mentioned, becomes really, really important because if we are living in this world of algorithmic news that where a preferential news is based on your what you've previously consumed, that makes it really, really difficult for people to find new news that counters their biases. So there's a couple of things there. One of the themes of the book is this idea that there are many different elements of truth that you can say about any one situation. Um, and you talked about bite-sized pieces. So uh, you could say a thousand different small things about um, a political event or a, a, a news event of whatever type, and, and it would give each one would give a very different impression to listeners, to your audience, as to what that event was about. Now, the trouble with social media and, and most of the ways we communicate now is that we only really have space and time for for one or two kind of headlines to get across, and 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 that limits the conversation. Um, people don't have the kind of attention span to really get in, into the details of a, of, a, of a political event, a news event, and really understand the many different sides that are going on to it. So as a result, we end up just getting a slanted image of, of each event. And of course, that's exacerbated if our friends or our, our associates have a particular political leaning or a particular angle that they're generally following, because as you said, the algorithms kick in and start to only serve up those you know, those very slanted views of reality, those um, biased takes on, on on world events. So we end up with this this very distorted impression of, of what's going on. It'd be great now, given that context, to jump into how you tear this apart and give us a better understanding of how we can be party to our own biases around us. And you tell us about the brilliant Andean dilemma. You tell us about quinoa, for example, and how a story can be interpreted a certain way. Yes, I start with this extraordinary story about, bizarrely, the economics of quinoa, because it's an example of how truth can be misleading in ways that are not in any way malevolent. No one intended to lie about this quinoa story, and yet somehow a large chunk of the well-meaning Western world became very very misled about, about the situation in, in South America. Let me briefly explain what, what happened. Quinoa is this miracle seed, which became very popular in, in, in Western Europe and North America amongst vegetarians and health fans. And then suddenly articles started coming out about how, because of the Western interest in quinoa and, and the amount of quinoa that was being exported from Bolivia and Peru, where it's grown to the rest of the world, suddenly prices in those origin countries were, were shooting up and local people who had eaten this traditional foodstuff all their lives could no longer afford to buy it. And this led to a lot of um, Westerners, you know, very sort of guilt-stricken, let's say, um, quinoa eaters in the West becoming very concerned about this. And, and, for example, pledging to give up quinoa in order to stop denying, in their words, the local people of Bolivia and Peru their, their traditional foodstuff. And this became so powerful that actually uh, not only did a lot of, of, of Westerners sort of deny themselves one of their favorite food types, but actually it started to threaten the quinoa industry in South America. The economics of this are not at all clear. And what what deeper research uh, showed when, when a couple of economics researchers looked into it was that the 
price increases in quinoa had been going on in South America um, less time than the drop in consumption of quinoa in Peru and Bolivia. In other words, they weren't necessarily connected. People in Peru and Bolivia had started moving to eat things like pasta and chicken and things because that's what they preferred to eating a diet solely of quinoa. Um, but the two things were linked in the public mind to the extent that, that um, the public reaction was actually quite dis, you know, deleterious to South Americans who had been enjoying a big um, influx of, 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 of export dollars as a result of this industry. And that export industry was, was then threatened by this apparently well-meaning development in the West. So it's a nice example of how some true facts about price shifts in quinoa and, and, and consumption patterns in, in Bolivia and Peru have been completely misunderstood and might have led to some very damaging effects on the, on the industries and, and economics of, of that area. Yeah, and you, you say that the real difference is, is the conclusion drawn. So you can draw different conclusions. But it's what I find fascinating is it's the domino effect of that. So, for example, you're meeting a possible client, a potential client, and that client has read the Bolivian uh, quinoa story and is actually pro-Bolivia and thinks that quinoa is actually damaging to the people who live there and they see you ordering quinoa for your lunch and all of a sudden you vilify them in your mind and it puts you know, a black mark against their name. That's right. So we might form impressions about events, about political situations, about about issues like quinoa exports, which are based on some form of truth, but aren't the whole truth. And, and that can shape our mindsets to the extent where we can start to not only act directly for ourselves on on those issues, but actually judge the way other people around us act, and that can, of course, impact um, importantly on relationships, on the way we view other people, and on the way we see the world. Yeah, and there's a huge leadership element of this as well. Like, I mean, you, you talk about a great story of your own work in strategic communications with a top firm. They were going through a transformation program. And when you do that, and when you interview people in the business to capture information to inform a story, you can come up with two different stories. And as you say, you can create the burning platform story or the golden opportunity story. Well, this is really where the idea for the book came from. I've spent the last more than 10 years um, as a strategic communications consultant, helping businesses express their plans, their ambitions, and often trying to explain to their own employees, you know, thousands of colleagues across an international workforce, what the organization is trying to do, and therefore what they're asking their people to do differently in order to support that, that strategic journey. Now, what became clear to me is, like most things, every organization is a very complex institution. And if you go and talk to 10, 15 um, board members or exco members, you get an awful lot of different opinions and facts and ideas about what the challenges of the business are and where it's headed. And then as the external consultant who's been brought in to try and make sense of all this and, 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 and craft a, a single narrative perhaps out of the opinions and, and, and views of all these different leaders, you find yourself with an extraordinary power to pick and choose the tone of that story and whether or not you want it to be a, a burning platform story, which is where you know, you're essentially saying this business is in real trouble and we need to all do something radical if we want the business to survive, or what one might call a golden opportunity story, where you're actually saying, "Guys, we're you know we're in great shape, but actually look at 
look at this wonderful technology we've got coming up or this 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 new market that's opening up and 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 think about what we could do to benefit from that if we can all get behind this transformation program and often the same company could be in the, in in both positions it could be in trouble um, facing us with a burning platform, and at the same time, it could have the opportunity to seize some new technology to usher in a new golden age of growth. Um, and you could take either angle with your with your narrative, with your communication strategy. But of course, the one you choose will dictate whether or not the employees of that business spend the next two or three years feeling frightened and worried about the situation, or whether they, by contrast, go into the next two or three years feeling engaged and excited and, and, and happy about the situation. And that really is a choice that communicators and, and, and clients, the leaders of these businesses, can make. That gave me the concept of competing truths, that you can say such radically different things about the same situation. And they can all be true, but they give a very different impression of reality to your audience and, and, and elicit a very different response in your audience. And your work in business storytelling has come to life in this so many ways. And you tell us that while it's become more important than ever to tell the correct story, because it, like you said, it affects the morale of staff. It can, it can give them a vision and a purpose to come to work every day, but also they can become business storytellers to your customer base. And you mentioned that this goes back to 1970s where Nike developed a storytelling program within the company. Yeah, Nike has got a, a wonderful storytelling culture. They even have specialist members of staff who I think they they call Ekins, which is Nike backwards, um, which you know who have been trained to go around telling stories of Nike's heritage, of its background, of of how it got going. So they they take these people off to visit the kind of key sites in Oregon. I think it is where you know the the original training field was, where Philip Knight and his coach. Um, First, uh, you know, trained together and started to, to to plot the idea of this sports sports shoe company, um, and that's led to a a wonderful culture of you know and of of meaning and identity for everyone who works at Nike, and of course, it's extended to the customer base as well. You get people who are really fanatical about um, about collecting and 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 and, and uh, treasuring rare editions of Nike shoes and so on and other clothing um so so their storytelling uh, reaching back into their past to select just a few kind of partial truths about the past if you like a few select elements of their history how i think it was bill bauman the coach first used his waffle iron to yeah. to melt rubber and and create the first of nike sole you know these little sort of anecdotes from their history are incredibly sort of empowering and, and engaging for both staff and customers. Now, what's interesting about this and, and every other company that uses this kind of tactic is, is of course, you're, you're looking at a very select range of historical truths here. Uh, Barclays does something similar where they, they talk about their Quaker heritage and the, the wonderful values they've got from their, their Quaker past. But of course, you know, other people could look at more recent Barclays history and, 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 and the fact that their traders manipulated LIBOR and did various other terrible things and say well okay you you know your 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 quaker history is one part of your history but there are plenty of less um, <laughs> impressive and less honorable aspects of your history that you don't talk about so again this comes back to this idea there are many different truths you can you can find about any one issue any one company any one situation and the communicator you know has the power to select between those truths to decide you know what kind of 
representation of reality they want to 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 convey. So Nike has this lovely storytelling impression they convey about um, you know about seventies athletics. Uh, Barclays reaches back into whatever it was the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds with their Quaker stories, but they avoid telling the you know the less pleasant stories about maybe child labor in Indonesia if it's Nike, or you know the Barclays trading scandals of of more recent years. Yeah, and you, you gave a brilliant example of this where I think it'd be great to share it, which is the Coca Cola history story. This is a brilliant one. Yes, yeah, Coca Cola, and and I'm not really criticizing them, but they they have a very interesting um, relationship with their history as it regards uh, Fanta, which is their second most important international brand. Um, Fanta, they 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 published a history recently of Coca-Cola, which first mentions Fanta in I think it's 1955 when they talk about Fanta being introduced in Italy. But in fact, Fanta was um, invented in 1940. A fact they don't mention in their in their official history at all. And the reason I assume for that is because Fanta was invented in Nazi Germany. Now I must quickly say, in case any. Um, in case any Coca-Cola lawyers are listening, that the, the Fanta was not invented by the Nazis. It was invented by the, the German branch of Coca-Cola after the wartime embargo prevented them from accessing you know, Coca-Cola's secret formula, its, its magic ingredients being sent over from, from America. So they had to make do. And it's a, it's a wonderful story, in fact, of innovation in, in difficult times. They, they, they found whatever was available. They found sort of apple peelings and, and, and whey and old, you know, bits and pieces of, of food waste and threw them together and melted them down and turned them into this, this slightly sickly sweet syrupy drink, which they named Fanta after the German Fantasia. Um, and, and, uh, and in fact, it became a huge hit. I think they were selling sort of 3 million bottles a year during part, you know, during those wartime years in Germany. But of course, um, Coca-Cola is very careful not to tell anyone about this origin story of, of Fanta, and it doesn't appear in their in their museum. It doesn't appear in their official history um, for very good reason. They 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 omit that because it, they don't want Coca-Cola to be associated with the Nazis. And this is of course, and you you talk heavily about politics as well, where many of us are manipulated either way. And you, you give that famous example of the King's Speech. It's really interesting that I love the film like many people did. And I was sort of aware anyway of this, this rallying cry that King George had made to Britain and the Empire at the outset of, of World War II. But what I hadn't realized until I went back and looked at it as an example of you know, a good communication is that that speech leaves out almost every detail of really what he's there to say. It doesn't mention German rearmament. It doesn't mention militarization of the Rhineland or the invasion of Czechoslovakia. It doesn't even mention the invasion of Poland, doesn't mention Hitler, doesn't even name Germany. So he leaves out almost every important fact. And yet, of course, no one would 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 suggest that he's trying to mislead anyone with these omissions. He's selecting his truths very carefully to focus on a moral message, which is that countries that attempt to subdue their weaker neighbors through the through force alone rather than rule of law and, and national compacts must be opposed and that concept is something that that could clearly be understood across an audience of of many millions of people many of whom were not of course na- native english speakers uh if you think he was broadcasting to india and, and and the other colonies at the time as well so it was a very finely judged speech um it's only about 400 words long and and it, it, it got the point across and, it, and it, it achieved its communications objective while leaving out almost every single important fact. 
let's take that now and throw it into a different realm, which is advertising, and give the great story of toothpaste with Colgate. Yeah, so I grew up with these marketing messages from Colgate saying that more than 80% of dentists recommend Colgate. And like most people, I think the message I took from those advertisements from, from, from that marketing campaign that ran for many, many years was that more than 80% of dentists thought that Colgate was the best toothpaste. They recommended Colgate above all other brands. That was the message I took away from it. But of course, that's not in fact true. What Colgate had done was run a survey, not asking dentists which toothpaste brand they would recommend, but which brands, plural, they would recommend. And that difference is absolutely critical because, of course, there aren't that many brands on sale. If you go into your local supermarket, you'll see Colgate and Crest and Sensodyne and one or two others. But very, you know, very, it's a very limited palette. And, of course, most dentists recommended all of those. Um, they said, yeah, any of these would be fine for people to use. So it's not surprising that 8 out of 10 dentists recommended Colgate. Most of them recommended all the other brands as well. Um, but the impression that that advertising campaign gave, of course, was that dentists overwhelmingly preferred Colgate, which is not at all the case. And so the result of that was that even though the statement was technically true, uh, in Britain, the Advertising Standards Authority recently banned that marketing message on the grounds that it was so misleading. You talk about this then, the ethical hierarchy of truth, and that it's a tool that can be used for good or for ill. And then you break it into three types of people that can use information. And it'd be great to share this advocates, misinformers, and misleaders. Sure. So they're really more like three different roles that any of us can play at any one time. Um, I, I'm not suggesting there are you know, saintly people who walk around always communicating for good and others who are always being malevolent. What I was trying to show is that when you set out to communicate truthfully, you can do it with different agendas. So advocates uh, is my term for people who will select their truths. They will, like George, uh, like George Sick, they will choose the truths that they want to, to use to get the message across most effectively. But they're not trying to mislead anyone. They're trying to give a, an accurate representation of reality, even if they're not telling the whole truth in the process. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people like Colgate Palmolive's marketers who are deliberately misleading us with the truth. They're picking their truths very carefully in order to give us a false impression of reality. Um, and, uh, and so they're very much the opposite of advocates. In the middle is another group of people, a little bit like um, the newspapers and bloggers who were so concerned about quinoa economics that we talked about earlier, <laughs> um, who have just got the wrong end of the stick, basically. You know, they're, they're concerned, they're, they're trying to get a point across, but they've misunderstood the truths that they're communicating. Another example of that, which I found fascinating as a left-hander, was a, a series of articles um, by by newspapers, including the New York Times, suggesting that left-handers die nine years younger than right-handers do on average, which is, if you're a left-hander, a little bit alarming. <laughs> yeah. um, now, that was based on a true statistical analysis done by you know some good, intelligent, scientific researchers in the US. But the statistics have been completely misinterpreted, both by the researchers and the newspapers. Um, so I, I, it's a little complicated to go into here, and people should have a look in the book. It's in chapter four, um, exactly why they've got the wrong end of the stick. But suffice to say, left-handers do not have a lower mortality 
uh, or higher mortality rate, lower life expectation than right-handers do. Um, but the statistics that have been used have been so badly misinterpreted that the New York Times and various other um, outlets felt that they were telling the truth when they stated in black and white that left-handers are going to die nearly a decade earlier than right-handers on average. So they were misinformers. They were the middle category, the people who are propagating a falsehood through the truth, but are not doing it deliberately or malevolently. They've just got the wrong end of the stick. That reminds me about the, your left-hand story, which is great in the book. You tell us there's three kinds of lies. Yes. So the idea of the three types of lies is not my idea. In fact, that's a quote I think that was popularized by Mark Twain. So he said, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And I think that reflects the frustration that a lot of, uh, let's call it lay people, feel about the way statisticians and perhaps consumers of statistics like politicians and others, marketers perhaps, use statistics to give us slightly um, misleading impressions of reality. In fact, I have a scientific background, a, a mathematical background. I have a great respect for statistics. They're incredibly useful. But uh, it, it's certainly true that you're able to draw on different forms of statistics to give, to paint different impressions. And in fact, one nice example of that is if you look at simply the different forms of average you can use to describe a situation. So the mean and the median are two different forms of the average, which give very different impressions of reality. But most people listening to politicians talking about this won't necessarily know the difference between the mean and the median. The example I give in the book is that in Britain, you could look at the mean salary in the UK and say that nurses are paid below the mean salary, but they're maybe paid above the median average salary in the UK. So most politicians would not say mean or median, they'd just say average. And politicians on one side of the political divide might say, well, nurses are paid below the average wage, whereas politicians on the other side of the divide would say they're paid above the average wage. And both would be technically correct. They're just talking about a different form of the average. But of course, most people listening would have no clue about that. So statistics can be used to mislead people in very clever ways. You give a great kind of rundown of tactics that can be used under each of these headings. And I thought one of the interesting ones was cherry picking statistics. And you used the case of Ireland and our exceptional, I'm doing air quotes here, our exceptional GDP distortion. Yeah, it, it's a rather sad story, that one, in that Ireland in, I think it was 2016, posted GDP growth well in excess of that of China and India and the other booming growth economies. It was double digits GDP growth when the rest of the EU was in low single digits. Now, how did Ireland achieve that? It was nothing to do with Irish domestic prosperity. It was simply a consequence of various international companies reallocating various assets around the world, particularly intellectual property assets like um, Apple's um, software, for example, to Ireland in order to benefit from its low corporate tax environment. Um, and so, of course, when those assets, those intellectual property assets were, were re-domiciled in Ireland, the profits accruing to them started to be listed under Irish GDP rather than, say, American GDP or, or, or some other country. That didn't mean that Ireland was becoming any richer. It didn't mean that the average Irish worker was being paid more or that there were more jobs in Ireland. There might have been a small increase in taxable corporate revenues going to the Irish government. But in av on average, the vast majority of Irish people would not have benefited in any way from this apparently huge GDP growth. 
I focus on this a little bit in the book because GDP is our single most important number that we use in economics to determine, for example, things like whether a country is officially in recession, determines interest rates, it determines uh, all kinds of kind of important economic measures being taken by government, it determines things like the, 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 the payment of pensions and unemployment benefits and so on. So GDP is incredibly important and has very significant impacts on our everyday lives. And yet it is flawed in so many important ways, as the Irish example demonstrates. It's a tactic we see all the time in politics in particular, particularly when people are trying to stay in office or get into office. And you talked to another great example, which was Trump's 94 million unemployed. Yeah, so Trump accurately, truthfully announced that there were 94 million unemployed people in, in the US. Uh, now, this is an extraordinary number. I can't remember the exact uh, population of, of, of the United States, but it must be around the 300 million mark. So 94 million is a, is a vast number. Now, of course, what he was including in that was all the retired people and, 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 and perhaps uh, students and the like, people who would not traditionally be considered unemployed because they're either retired or they're doing something else. They're in, they're in education. Um, so it's a very unuseful version of what it means to be unemployed. It's not helpful to talk about retirees when you're talking about unemployment. But, but in some sense, he was telling the truth. But the impression he was giving to his audience absolutely deliberately, and therefore I would call him a misleader, uh, was that these people were unemployed involuntarily and they were looking for work. When in fact, of course, the number that are actually out of work and looking for work is far, far, far lower than that. Yeah, it was a, incredibly, it was a tenth of the size of something like 7.4 million, I think, from, from the book. But uh, That's not about right. Yeah, so, so when, you, when you throw this then out into, let's go back to what we mentioned about social media and the bite-sized chunks, you, you give these great examples where you question us, the reader. Say, for example, I see a headline on Twitter saying, we're hiring a thousand new nurses. That seems quite big, but what does it mean in the bigger picture? That's right. So I'm just trying to show the importance of, of relative numbers in, in that section of the book. And so I was saying, you know, if that announcement was made in Estonia, a thousand new nurses in a small country like Estonia would have a huge impact. Whereas if that announcement was being made by the German government, well, frankly, it's neither here nor there. They have such a large nursing population that a thousand new nurses is a very, very small um, incremental increase in, in the staffing numbers. So it's very important if you're trying to get a sense of the, the the relevance and significance of a number that a politician in particular throws out to look at look at how it stands in relative you know relative to to other numbers uh, to to show how significant it really is. It's difficult. I mean, one of the things I, I was telling you off air, I strive to do and to achieve is to get as unbiased as I can a view never to be idealist about anything, to actually question my view, to share both sides of the story, essentially. And you, you do that really well in this book. But there's a case you give, which I'd love to share with our audience and ask them to kind of figure out this riddle, which is Simpson's paradox. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun element of statistics, this, which is this idea that what happens at the group level in a population may be very different to what's happening at the subgroup level. So the riddle I use is, a man with longer than average hair walks into a bar and the overall average hair length in the bar decreases. And how is that possible? And of course, the answer is that uh, the man has longer than average hair for men, 
but men's hair on average is shorter than women's hair on average. And we're assuming that in this bar, there are plenty of women. So although his hair is longer than average for men, it's actually perhaps below the average length of hair in the bar because that's been pushed up by all the women in the bar. So this is an example of, uh, of, of Simpson's paradox. And I give in the book a, a, a real-life example of how that applies in American wages. It's a little complicated to explain on air now, but it's a fascinating example of how if you look at American wage growth at the total level, it seems to have behaved very differently than if you look at the wage growth of the um, difference of economic subgroups. And that's because the economic subgroups, things like, for example, high street, uh, sorry, high school dropout, college educated, masters educated, those groups have changed over time as well. So there are many more people with degrees in the US now than there, are, than there were 30 years ago. Uh, so those people obviously are, are higher paid than, than the people who have been high school dropouts. So the fact that the number of people with degrees has gone up compared to high school dropouts, which has relatively gone down, means that wages have been pushed up overall, even though wage growth is negative in all of those groups individually. So on average, people with college degrees are earning less than they were 10 years earlier, but nevertheless, people overall are earning more because there are more people with college degrees. Yeah, don't get me started on that one, man. That's, that's a whole different... <laughs> it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit confusing and it may be easier to understand it if you read the book, but... Uh... It's really good, really well described in the book. In general, I mean, it's a burgeoning crisis because of people expecting to get jobs where they can pay off their student loans, especially in the US. But uh, we won't go there, man, for this show. Uh, but but this, this is really related closely to context and... For example, even when I said, let's share the Simpsons paradox, many people would have thought of Homer Simpson, for example, given their context or exposure to Homer Simpson. And the reason I mentioned that is you talk about the egg test and that if you give this scenario, which I'd love if you did share, of picturing an egg on a table, how many people will see so many different pictures given their context and their history? Yes. So I start the book with this very simple statement of truth, which is, there is an egg on the table. And I, and I do that simply to show how complicated and multifaceted even a simple truthful statement like that can be. So imagine that egg on the table. What do you see? And some people might see a, a whole egg in its shell. They might see a chicken egg. They might see a duck egg. But perhaps they might see a dinosaur egg or, or, or why not caviar or, or even a human egg. If they see a chicken egg, does it need to be in its shell or is it actually a fried egg or a poached egg? Is it a painting of an egg? You know, all these different ways in which you could interpret that sentence. And yet we tend to just rush to judgment and you hear a simple line like that and you make an assumption about what the speaker means. So I use that just to show how complicated truth is, even when you have a very simple statement like that. Then compare that to most of the things we talk about in, in politics or business, marketing, whatever it may be, and you realize how open to misinterpretation so many more complicated statements are around, for example, I, I use in the book Amazon and driverless cars as examples of, of subjects which can be viewed in so many different ways that actually trying to come to a single point of view or you know, agreement in an argument about, say, the meaning of Amazon or, or, or whether or not we should permit driverless cars on our roads 
these things are highly complicated issues that that by by selecting the type of truth you tell about them, you can really influence people in in all kinds of different directions. It's that initial first impression, isn't it? That the first lens you get can change everything you see thereafter. And I'd love if you did share the fantastic dilemma you give us regarding autonomous vehicles, because that one, and you aptly call it the driving test, is a fantastic one and very apt for this show. Well, it's interesting because in about well, who knows, maybe two or three years, we're, we're likely to face a situation where our legislators in parliament are going to have to vote on whether or not to allow autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, privately owned, to be operated on our roads. The technology is moving so fast that that's going to be a reality very soon. And so I sort of have this thought experiment in the book of, okay, let's imagine the legislator, an MP or whoever it may be, facing this question and she she calls on her various special advisors and other interest groups to tell her different views on driverless cars and i kind of go through all the different things that people might say what an economist might say in terms of the benefits for the economy that the building up a driverless car industry would would allow versus what a security expert might say for example that autonomous vehicles are vulnerable to hacking attacks and could be used as weapons against us by terrorists or other states to what a city planner might say in terms of, well, we could do away with all these parking lots and, and turn them over to uh, city amenities and, and, and the like, to what perhaps a trucking driver's unionist might say. You know, there are potentially 5 million jobs in America alone in the truck industry, which would go if we allow driverless vehicles. So there are all these different ways, the pros and cons that emerge, depending on which angle you take. And, and I point out in the book that even a really objective and agenda-free advisor would be hard pushed to give a really complete picture of the, of the driverless car world. Yet, of course, that's not what most of us are like. And so most advisors or most uh, lobbyists who would approach our imaginary MP to advise her on which way she should vote would come with an agenda. They would come with a particular mindset, a particular view on driverless cars. And the, the, the messages they would give would undoubtedly be flavored by that. So they would tend to, if they, for example, were heavily invested in Tesla shares, they would tend to focus on the positive benefits, the health you know, the, the safety benefits of driverless cars, whereas someone who perhaps was married to a trade union representing taxi drivers uh, might be much more inclined to emphasize the negative aspects of, of driverless cars. And we all do this. I mean, we can look at our Facebook feeds and see that we tend to, you know, select those elements of our day-to-day life that put us in a good light and downplay or leave out, omit the things that are embarrassing or, or, or whatever. So it's, it's quite a natural process, this, this idea of omission and selection and cherry picking uh, when it comes to the different forms of the truth that we choose to tell. Closely aligned to that, you talk about first impressions, but and the lasting consequences it can have is history. So schools, for example, we teach children history and that gives them, much like you talked about corporate communications and as business storytelling can have an effect on employees. The story we tell of a nation or the story of a, a nation's plight can have a massive effect on how the people of that nation, what their worldview becomes. And you talk about the cherry picking of history, for example, racial and slavery history in some US schools and the omission of huge pieces of information that are missing from so many textbooks. That's right. So this was particularly um, in Texas. There there was a a recent revision of the curriculum in Texas public schools so that new history books being used in Texas schools by perhaps something like 5 million kids eventually 
would omit any mention of, for example, the Ku Klux Klan or Jim Crow laws, which, you know, if your listeners aren't aware, they are very influential and important segregation laws in the southern states um, that, that massively uh, impacted the black population even after the, uh, the end of slavery. And, uh, and even when it came to discussion of um, the Civil War, which is one of the most important events in American history, these books um, were treating uh, slavery, which most historians would agree was the casus belli. It was the reason why uh, the, America went to war against itself in, in, in the 1860s. They, they viewed that as a side issue to the main argument, which was about states' rights. Um, now, that's a you know, most people would think that was a huge distortion of, of, of the truth. But of course, what they're really doing is omitting bits of the truth, a little bit like um, Coca-Cola with its, its Fanta origin story. They're just leaving out the really embarrassing bits. And we see, we see this happening in all kinds of um, history uh, curricula around the world. The Israelis have done a similar thing when it comes to the Palestinian Nakba where, in 1948, when they uh, essentially exiled a great chunk of the Palestinian population from Israel. Um, that is something that's left out of the, the, the history books for their their children, and and of course we in Britain and I'm sure in Ireland have been you know have been guilty of much the same thing with uh, w- with our history curricula where we tend to certainly in Britain uh, certainly when I was growing up um, the, the 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 historical accounts of things like the Black Hole of Calcutta and the Indian Mutiny and then going on to the Opium Wars in China tended to portray the British in a fairly positive light, um, which, as an adult, I've come to see was perhaps not entirely uh, justified. So <laughs> when you look at the, you know, the opium wars in a dispassionate light and the, the, the rather terrible things that the British and the French did, uh, certainly in Beijing with the Summer Palace and so on, you can start to understand why the Chinese still um, nurse resentment about their so-called his, uh, century of humiliation, which which we, the British, kicked off in 1840. And it's amazing how the, even you know the, the, the death of the printing press and the birth of the internet democratized information spreading, but also the ill sides of that. And um, you talk about your own story then, so coming back to selective editing, that this is a natural part of any communication and that this happens in business communication as well. And and you shared your own story of Ericsson's history and weaving that into the story of the company to get them going forward. That's right. So Ericsson was a client a few years ago and they very kindly let me write about the experience in, in the book. Um, and, and the interesting situation there was that the they were going through quite a significant transformation requiring them to shift from essentially putting antenna and other boxes on the tops of hills to, to link up mobile phones to much more high-value, complicated um, cloud-based services, technology consulting services, media, and so on. So they needed their employees essentially to get into an innovation mindset and start being prepared to change what they did and, and become more innovative, more risk-taking, and so on. Now, Ericsson's a very large company. It, you know, you might say it's quite a bureaucratic company. You could you could look at it and say this is an oil tanker that's going to take a while to to turn around. But we were able to reach into Ericsson's history and pull out some key elements of its past, which painted it very much as a technology pioneer. So we looked at, for example, the fact that they invented Bluetooth. They invented quite a few of the protocols for mobile phones, like three G, four G, and so on. Um, they, you know, they they were instrumental in 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 inventing aspects, you know, elements of the telephone back in the nineteenth century. 
Um, and, and so we were able to pull out these aspects of their history, of their technological pioneering history, to paint them as in this light as being innovators. And so therefore, encourage their current crop of employees to take up this mantle of technology pioneers rather than focusing on their more bureaucratic, their more conventional corporate side, which wouldn't encourage the same behavior shift. So that's an example of how we tried to use selective versions of the truth to be very constructive, to encourage people into positive behavior shifts that would be beneficial for both employees and the wider company and customers, of course. Everyone benefits. I would call that being an advocate. But it is a selective use of the truth, as is most corporate communication, indeed most political communication for that for that matter. The other one you share, which is actually selective use of the past with Kew Gardens. And, and you say here that your key impact on that project as a consultant was not having the narrative anchored in a sepia-tinted history. That's right. So in fact, there I was trying to move the director away from history because um, Richard Deverell, the director, um, who again has very kindly given me permission to write about this, this, this case study in the book, he's a history buff. He comes, he comes from that background and he was very fond of the telling the history of Q. It is a wonderful history and it goes back to Princess Augusta in the 18th century and you know two palaces whose gardens were combined and there was a famous landscape gardener involved and so on. And and so every speech he gave tended to start off with five, ten minutes of 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 Q's history. Now that's fine if that's your if that supports your communication goal. But in fact, what Q brought me in to do was to try and help shift the narrative about Q in the light of Britain's austerity and funding, you know, threats to the funding of Q, public funding of Q, away from this idea that Q is some kind of old heritage garden and towards the idea that Q is in fact a, a 21st century cutting edge research organization with some of the biggest plant and fungi data sets on the planet. Um, and my my simple observation to Richard was, well, yeah, that sounds sensible. That sounds like the kind of direction you want to take your communication. So why are you starting every conversation with a discussion of history, which is just confirming people's existing beliefs that Q is this old-fashioned kind of rather pretty thing in Southwest London, rather than an institution with you know with a huge amount to give um, to the world in terms of research on uh, climate change impact on plants, on 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 uh, food scarcity, on on increasing our resilience in the face of things like um, um, plant epidemics and so on. Uh, and so that, that, that was essentially what I did with the Q narrative was to, to, to move it away from history and start it in contemporary issues like climate change, like epidemics, pandemics, like food and energy security, and only then refer to Q and everything it has to offer on that front. It's a really important one because we have a lot of CEOs and business leaders and consultants listen to this show. And I'm sure that one will be of massive interest because it also has an, a massive impact on your people. So I'm sure if you were to attach fMRI scanners to the people and show them thinking differently or starting to think differently about themselves, their self-talk changes because they start saying, I'm part of this cutting edge industry or this cutting edge company. And I'm sure their behaviors start to change. Well, indeed. And I just, uh, uh, two days ago, was giving a talk to a, a corporate event where the brief was essentially to show how different forms of the truth that we can tell ourselves can help us with our resilience. So this is a company that has a big you know, employee motivation and morale problem. And they were trying to find different ways to improve 
employee morale and build up resilience of employees. And one of the ways was to look at how we represent the worlds to ourselves. So just as I talked about there being many different versions of the truth that we can tell other people, there are also many different ways that we can represent the world to ourselves. And you can choose whether or not you want to, you know, if you look at all the things you can say about today, for example, you can choose to focus on the sun, sunny day, or you can choose to talk, you know, think about the birds singing or the children playing in the street or whatever it may be. Or you can choose to focus on, on, on the guy who just put a dent in the, in the side of your car. And that's going to flavor the way you see the rest of the day. So, so there are many ways that you can use some of these same communications tricks to shape your own perception, your own mindset, and your own response to events. And this, of course, you know, links back to ancient ideas that we associate with the Stoics and so on about you may not be able to change events in the world, but the one thing we all have control over is the way we respond to those events. And a large part of that is the way we choose to interpret events and the way we choose to shape our mindsets in response to those events. So we don't have to get cross and angry about the dent in the car. We can say, well, I'd rather focus on the bird song and the, and the sunny day and, and, and be positive and happy and cheerful. Yeah, so, so important. I, I read this amazing study of, I don't know if you heard about this from the Japanese scientist, I think it was Masaru Emoto. Have you heard this story where he spent 15 years researching the effects of human speech and thoughts and emotions towards physical matter? And he, he measured 10,000 samples of water and how it responded to words, music and prayers and blessings. So he had kind of two groups of water, one where it was cursed and people said, I hate you, you're an idiot. And the other group of water was prayers were said for it, nice music was played to it. And what happened was, and this has been replicated in many, many different neutral studies across the world. The water that was spoken kindly to and prayed over crystallized, became ultra clear and beautifully formed crystals, while the other water that was cursed and told it was hated, the crystals formed ugly, dark holes. If you take that story and then go, well, how we talk to ourselves becomes really, really important. And then go up a level again and go, how a company talks about itself becomes ultra important. It does. I, I mean, I'm gonna. I've, I've never heard that thing about the the, the water crystals. I, I'm I'm gonna take it. I think it's a very interesting metaphor. I, I'm gonna take the science with a grain of salt. But yeah. But I think it's it's absolutely true when you're talking about people and companies. Uh, all, all of that is absolutely true. That we we shape ourselves. I work a lot with corporate culture. I mean, I use storytelling and other forms of communications to try and shape and, and shift corporate culture, which is, as you probably know, one of the hardest things to do, try and get people to become you know, more collaborative or, or, or more innovative or whatever it may be, um, is a really tricky thing. Uh, the Ericsson story is an example of that. Um, but it's, it's, it is so important, and as everyone knows by now, you know the shape of a corporate culture will will impact your financial performance, your customer satisfaction, your results in every possible way. So it couldn't be more important, but it's one of the hardest things to shift. There's very few levers that your average chief executive can pull in order to improve culture. But I do go into that in the book in some depth in the chapter on beliefs, which is the, the final chapter, because I think even though mm -hmm. uh, it, it's hard to say that a belief is true, for many of us, some of our most strongly held beliefs are quite clearly true to us, and they shape the way we behave. So our religious beliefs, our ideological beliefs, and our corporate beliefs. And I look in the book at how corporations try to shift beliefs and thereby change the culture of a business. And this goes back to, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the cultural iceberg 
metaphor. The behaviors that we're trying to shift in a company are usually just the tiny surface element of the iceberg, which is founded on a massive submerged set of beliefs and values, which uh, is what you have to change if you want to change the behaviors. Yeah, and I, I actually realize that I'm guilty of of a story tactic that you talk about in the book where I'm I'm positioning my uh, water story. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> there he goes. He's guilty of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, everyone's, uh, everyone's, allowed, everyone's allowed their own beliefs in after all <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good way to finish because i mean the the, the difficulty is and you, you were sharing with me with this some people become disillusioned with this because it's like well how the heck do i get a neutral view and it's just something we we continually have to work on but i'd love hector like we're running out of time which is i'm, I'm frustrated because i've only got a quarter through the book it's a brilliant book and you go on to share the different types of truths subjective truths, unknown truths, artificial truths, etc. And it's it's a brilliant book. But I'd love if you shared your your last view. So what what would you like to see the change in the world that you would like to see that that inspired you to write this book? I, I would like to see people becoming more informed, better consumers of information. Because we're living in a world now where the traditional gatekeepers of information have largely receded. You know, we no longer can rely on the BBC or the New York Times to curate the world's information for us. They were never perfect, but they were pretty good at trying to present a, an objective portrait of reality. And I still you know, obsessively get my news from the BBC, but most people don't. 70% of people seem to get their news from Facebook, apparently, which is absolutely not going to give you a, a, an objective, balanced view of the world. So what I'm hoping is that the book, Truth, will will inspire people to, or at least will it educate people a little bit on the many different ways in which true statements can be misleading, can be confusing, can give you a false sense of reality, but also the, the, you know, the constructive ways in which different forms of the truth can be used, as in the example of Kew Gardens or Ericsson, so that people just learn to be a little bit more sophisticated about the way they interpret new information that comes to them from perhaps slightly suspect sources. So that when Donald Trump says there are 94 million unemployed people, or that it's you know, more dangerous in Chicago than Afghanistan or, you know, many of the other extraordinary misleading statements that he's come out with in the last few years. Um, we, we're, we're a little bit more quick to see how he might be misleading us with the truth, even when he is using the truth. And Hector, where can people find out more? And if they want to work with your company, et cetera, where can they find you? Sure. My company is called CoreQ, C-O-R-E blank Q, the letter Q. Um, and the website is coreq.co.uk, or you can just search for hectormcdonald.com, which is my writing website, and we'll link to the, the work website as well. I have a Twitter and Facebook presence, but I'm not very good at social media, so it's usually best to just find me online and drop me an email. You don't trust it, man. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not great at these newfangled modern things. I'm afraid. As a as a professional communicator, I'm very bad at social media. <laughs> I said to you off air before we started that us Irish don't do the ths very well. And when I when I saw the title of the book, I was like, "Damn it, truth." <laughs> so uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you. It's a brilliant book. Highly recommend it. Strategic communications expert, master storyteller, and author of Truth how the many sides to every story shape our reality. Hector MacDonald, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Aidan. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs>